Well, again, we're glad that you're here. Had a great Sunday last Sunday. Uh, over 1,850 people here. And that, that's in August, so that's not bad. And fed over 1,350. That's a lot of chicken. And so I hope everyone had, had a good time doing that, just a way for us to connect with each other. And then the big news that we have this week is we actually closed on our Tiffin property uh, and building. And so we're very excited about that. And uh, very excited. And hopefully soon you'll be seeing a sign that says Grace Community Church, Tiffin Campus coming soon, 2019, kind of a deal. So we are, we're all pumped about that. We, we, we actually have already talked to some contractors about getting some bathrooms and some stuff that needs to happen. Uh, we're uh, fighting a deadline. We'd really like to go in there uh, by the end of February for our hard launch. And so we'd love for you to be praying about that. And then we also have an opportunity to get in before the contractors get there because there's state permits and everything that has to happen. Uh, we'd like to get in there with a team. David Stacy is leading a team that uh, they're going to meet over there uh, coming up in a couple of weeks. Actually, that's September Wednesday, September 19th through Saturday, September 22nd, that half a week. Uh, we'll have a team in there. If you want to be a part of that, you can leave your name out at the information table and David could give you a call. Or if you know David Stacy, then you could just connect with him or just show up. So that's kind of what's happening there. And we are, we are locked and loaded and ready to go. In a couple weeks, we have our outdoor baptism. And so many of you have uh, given your life to Christ. But since that day that you gave your life to Christ, you have not followed the Lord in believer's baptism, which means uh, as a part of a church family being dunked underwater. And if you haven't done that, then this is a great opportunity for you. We'd love for you to sign up and uh, put, mark that on your card, and you can just drop that card by the information table. Even if no one's there later in the service, just drop it there, and we'll contact you. So we are in Blueprint, which is simply a series going through 1 Timothy. And now we're in the last chapter, and I'm going to take two Sundays to talk about this last chapter because there's two different topics, and one of the topics is money. And so we're going to be addressing that today. And I know some of you already, you're like, oh, money, because to you, the scariest thing we could talk about in the Bible is the money, especially when I just talk about closing on a Tiffin property and all that. You're thinking, oh, no, here it comes. Hold on to your wallets. But uh, that, that's not actually that's not the scariest thing. The scariest truth in the Bible. That's not it. I may even share the scariest truth in the Bible before we're done today. But uh, that the money thing is not it. And hey, uh, we're, 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 I'm not going to ask you to give money. This is not any kind of a sermon to try to get something from you at all. So just relax, relieve the tension, you know, kick back. But, uh, but money is a big part of our lives. It comes up a lot in the Bible, and that's why we talk about it. And we've all heard that money doesn't buy, but we don't really live that way. A lot of times. Amazingly, we all know that that's true. Money does not buy happiness. And we can think of many examples. But we don't actually seem to live like we believe that. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. And, and we'll try to, try to get that right in our lives. We think we believe it, but maybe we don't. Anytime we talk about money, 
I always try to put it in the context to let us know how much money we have. And I do that in different ways. This time I'm going to do it in a different way. And that's this. We've all heard of one percenters, right? You know what a one percenter is? We talk about people, you know, controlling so much wealth or one percenter, the richest people in America. Well, I want to put it this way. If you make $32,000 a year, if you earn, and that's with your retirement and your benefits and everything else, if you earn $32,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of all wage earners in the world. You're in the top one. You're a one percenter. Didn't think that, did you? Because we always think of things in, in terms of our country. Now, if you're making $32,000 a year, you are not in the top one percent in America, but you are in the world. And so I just like to open our, our minds on that to say, hey, we are all incredibly resourced by God. And that's why it's even more important for us to hear things about money. And, and as we deal with that, we know that what God's talking about on this topic, the solution, what we'll be talking about today, the answer to this whole issue is always contentment. And we, if you're a believer here, and not everybody here is, but if you're sitting here and you're a true believer, then you have every reason to be content. Because God says, even the bad, even our bad things, God will work together to make it good for us. And our good things, we can never lose. And the best thing is coming soon. So if you're a believer, our bad things, even our bad things, God will cause to work for a good in our life. Our good things, we will never lose. And our best thing will be coming soon. And that's what we can take to the bank. So as we talk about money, it, what I, I want us to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we go through, we're kind of wrapping up this Sunday, next Sunday, this last chapter, and then, and then we're, we're going to start an incredible new series. I think you're going to love it. It's actually two series, but we're going to go through the entire Old Testament. And I know for a lot of you, you're going, whoa, the, the whole Old Testament, I think you'll, I think you'll like it. Uh, the, first, first, the, first, the first three uh, sermons are just on Genesis. This explains everything, Genesis 1, 2, 3. And then we're going to kind of lightning jet through the Old Testament, really to put everything in perspective, to tie the whole Bible together before we get to the New Testament. But anyway, you'll, you'll, you'll like it. Come back for that. It's in a couple of weeks. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning of verse 6. Here's what it says. Remember, Paul's writing Timothy, young pastor in a church. He's talking about how to do church, and, and he's been addressing some certain people. And he says this, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content." But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now I'm going to skip forward to 17 and we'll pick up that next week, what's in between. But verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now what Paul lays out here for Timothy that he, and part of which he's to instruct the church, is he's basically saying two things. Money is a trap and we must know how to escape it. Money is a trap and we must know how to escape it. And this involves one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, right? Because we've all heard money is the root of evil, but that's not the way it is, right? Verse 10 says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And there's a few things we need to notice as we dive in here. So that first thing is just that, that money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root. And Paul is not only talking to people who have riches. He's also talking about people who desire to have more wealth. And, and that's even a, a bigger category, whether they've gained it yet or not. He's talking about the love of money, the desire. And then I want to point out another thing. Paul is not saying that having wealth is bad. The rich people that, for example, when Jesus was interacting, when he encountered rich people, he was not telling all of them that they shouldn't be rich or they should give everything away. He did that once. He encountered a man, the rich young ruler, and as they were having a discussion about his spiritual need, Jesus challenged him to sell everything he had to come and follow Jesus. But that's not because that's what Jesus wanted for everybody. That was a teaching moment for that particular man to teach him and show him that, that, that he wasn't as righteous as he thought he was. Because remember, he thought he had kept the law. And so Jesus challenged him that way. But Jesus talked to many other rich people and he didn't say that. For example, he talked to Nicodemus about spiritual things. He didn't say anything like that. He talked to Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, wealthy man in Jericho. And they had a discussion about spiritual things. He didn't challenge him to give everything, even though Zacchaeus gave, did give a portion of stuff back. But Jesus never said, hey, you need to cease being rich. As a matter of fact, all through the Bible, it's God who many times made people wealthy. For example, Job and Abraham and Solomon these men, God said he made them rich. He, he blessed them to be rich. So we just need to know, hey, being rich is not a bad thing. But then, and then the third thing that I want us to see, and this is kind of the main thing where I want to focus, is that those who desire wealth 
fall into a trap and, and we fall, money is a trap. When we desire wealth, we fall into that trap because money blinds us in two different ways. How many of you, when you go to bed at night, do you, I'm, I'm going to take a little informal poll here. How many of you like flip out the switch by the door and you sort of make your way through the dark to your bed? Or how many of you go to bed in the light and you have some way of just turning off the lamp or something for, or, or whatever you do, and then it goes dark. So how many of you walk through the dark bedroom to get to your bed? That's what I do. Anybody? And then how many of you know I go to bed and then I have a way to flip out where I just tell somebody else to do it later? That might be one, two. Okay. Well, I'm one of those people that I, right by the door is the switch. So I hit the switch and then I walk through my bedroom that, that I've been in like a thousand times, right? And so I know the path. But then, and maybe you're like me or maybe you're not, every once in a while I'm walking in this dark room and I think I know exactly where I'm at and bam, I, I hit our bedpost. And I realize I'm actually two feet over this way further than I thought. That happened to anybody. Does that ever happen? So, so, so here I am. I cannot see... I think I'm in a certain position. I'm pretty confident. I'm walking. But then I hit something and I realize, oh, I'm not where I thought I was. I'm over here running into the bedpost. I got to reorient myself. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying money is a trap because it blinds us in a couple of different ways. The first way is this. Money blinds us to see ourselves as who we really are. It blinds us to who we really are. And here's how this works. When we are successful, if you're really successful in accumulating wealth and you're good at it, and so you have a competency, so you have a, you're an expert kind of, you, you know it. The problem with that is we tend to overgeneralize our success in one area of our life, specifically when it's finances, we overgeneralize that success into other areas of our life. Simply put, when we're successful at, at finances, we tend to think we're that successful in every area of our life. And a lot of times we are overconfident in these other areas because just because we're successful in this one area doesn't mean that we're an expert in these other areas, but we tend to view it that way. We all do. And so you just, it bl money blinds us to who we really are. And then the second thing is money blinds us to how much we have, which is kind of weird. Money blinds us to how much we have. And the reason this happens is because money is addictive in nature. Kind of a weird concept here, but money is addictive in nature. Just like illegal drugs are addictive, and when somebody takes illegal drugs, they do that to experience a high. But the longer they take those drugs, the more that, that the high is not as high as it used to be. They don't get the same pop that they did at the very beginning. And so they increase their dosage, right, in order to feel the intensity of the high they did back when they first. You know what I'm talking about, right? I don't need to explain that. Yeah, we take more. Money has that kind of a quality. We don't think about it that way, but it's very easy to illustrate because what happens? 
If you've lived any amount of time, typically through the decades until you hit retirement, a lot of, not for everybody, but a lot of times our uh, salaries or the money that we make or the stuff we accumulate, it increases over time. And so, and, and by the way, side note, a lot of times Young people will be like, well, man, you know, I, my parents, they live this way. So that's the standard of living that I should have. And I should have a couple of nice cars and live this big house. But young people forget, oh, it took them three decades, four decades to accumulate all that stuff. And so, yeah, you start out on a different level, even if you're on the same path. But I don't even know where I got there. Anyway, back to my, the second way money blinds us is that it blinds us to how much we really have. It's addictive in nature. And the way we can see that is as our um, resources grow, typically over time is the way it works in our country, then the things, when we started out, we had necessities and then we had luxuries, right? And as our wealth increased, we were able to buy some of those luxuries, and those luxuries are nice. I mean, they are really nice. They're cool to have. But then as we own those luxuries for a long time, what happens? Those luxuries then become necessities. We start viewing the luxuries in our life as necessities. We think, oh, we, we, we can't really imagine doing without those anymore because we've had them for so long. And the longer that we're, we're blind, that it, it, the other way that it happens is, is we all do life typically in a circle of people, friends, relatives, coworkers, acquaintances. And as we do life in a circle, a, a lot of times that circle is somewhat socioeconomically based. But the point is, in our circle, we can always, almost always point to somebody else who has way more than we do. And so we think, well, I don't have much because I don't have what they have or, you know, and sometimes we even do that in a judgmental way. Yeah, look, can you believe what they got? I mean, if I had that money, I would do good or I would do something or I wouldn't spend it that way. You know, and we could even be judgmental about it, but we always see people in, in our circle that have more, which causes us to think I don't have that much. And then as our standard of living increases, and then Paul talks about generosity and giving to others and that kind of a thing. And then we'll think, wow, I'm strapped. You know, I would like to be more generous, but man, I, it's, I, it's just, it's tight. It's pretty much pay, pay tech, paycheck to paycheck. I, I'm kind of strapped. But we're doing that, and, and it's because our standard of living has increased, and it probably do almost all of us some good if we froze our standard of living, and then as we got increase wealth over time, that would then create financial margin in our life and sort of take some of those stressors away. Does that make sense? If we freeze our standard of living while our income is still going up, if we freeze our standard of living, then as our income increases, we won't be strapped all the time and it will create financial margin. It's probably be a good thing for all of us, less stress and everything else. You know, it's often said, you can tell what you worship by how you spend your money. You can tell 
what you worship by looking at your checkbook or checking your account online. That's what's important to you where, where your money goes. And non-generosity, or the Bible calls that greed, is actually a sin, and it's a sin that we are particularly blind to. Probably nobody here sitting here thinking, hey, I'm greedy. Where we talk about other sins, a bunch of us are sitting there going, wow, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty. I've done that. You know, that's terrible. But greed, we don't really see it that way because we think everyone else, we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people, and some of those people have more than we do. So the first section that we talked about, verses 6 through 10, they're addressed not just to the rich. Those verses are addressed to people who want to be rich. So it could be rich people or people who aren't rich, you know, but desire it and they're just not there yet. And from that we learn that money can be a poison in our life through its presence or even through its absence. We don't have to have a lot of money to have a problem with money. And then the next passage of scripture we read beginning in verse 17 is specifically addressed to the rich. Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, to the rich in church, say this. And so to the rich, we have this instruction. I know when I say that, we're, almost all of us are thinking, oh, to the rich. Well, then I don't have to worry about that. Oh, this is addressed to the rich. Well, I'm not rich. I mean, I, I'm not in that category. Nobody's going to accuse me of being rich. I mean, I don't have enough money to be in that category. If you think that, you're an addict. You're blind. You're self-deceived. Money has blinded you because money is a trap. Well, if money is a trap, then how do we escape it? How do we make sure that we don't fall into that trap? And of course, the answer is, Paul says, godliness with contentment. Now, godliness just means, uh, that uh, it's kind of a word we ascribe to others, but we probably never say, hey, yeah, I'm a godly person. Godliness just means following God or piety. We don't use that word much either, but it just means following God. So following God with contentment. Contentment means that we are satisfied with what we have, that we don't feel a need for anything else. We're satisfied with our life. And God is telling us as believers that we should have contentment. And that brings peace that's detached from circumstances. Now, the reason that we don't feel contentment a lot of times is because we imagine that as we increase our wealth, it will bring security or safety into our lives. We think the more money we have, the more secure that we're, we're going to feel. And, and then we're tempted to not be generous or to be greedy. But we're tempted to be greedy. It's not because of stinginess. It's not because we don't want to share with other people. We're greedy not because of stinginess. We're greedy because of fear. We think we won't have enough. We're afraid that we'll be left without. We're insecure. We don't feel safe with our planning. And of course, the problem with that is, 
you know, you hit a certain point of your life or, or whatever, and, and we do financial planning or whatever, and, and sometimes people be looking at, at what they have and they'll try to project to the future and they'll say, wow, you know, if my income stops or I ever retire or anything like that, I'm not going to have enough. I mean, I'm, I'm doing, I'm working all the math and the numbers just are not adding up. And I know how that feels. I get it. But I think we need to balance that with, you know what? God has always provided for my needs. I mean, that's me. God has always provided for my needs financially. When I had nothing for a short time, when I had no place to live, God has all, it was okay. It was really okay. Of course, I didn't have a wife and kids, so that made it okay, I guess. It was just, it wasn't that bad. Because I knew that God was providing for me and would continue to provide for me. So we need to balance our insecurity about the future with how God has provided, for, if we've been a Christian for a while, how God has provided for the rest of our life. And then that helps us be more okay with what's going to happen in the future. That's contentment. Here's the way Paul described contentment. It's probably the best um, best passage on just what, can, what it means to be content. Paul says in Philippians 4.11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry of both having abundance and suffering need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So you, here you have Paul. He's been rich. He's been poor. He's done it all. He's been in prison. Everything's happened. He's been shipwrecked. Everything has happened to this guy. And he says, hey, it's all okay. It's all okay. I've learned to be content. He's spot on. And so Paul's not thinking, wow, if I had a little more money, I would be secure or I'd be safe. Paul's like, no. We, if, if you're a true believer, you have every reason to be content and not just content, even joyful right now. Why? Because even our hardships, even the bad things that happen, God will work for our good. He'll turn it into good in our lives. We don't always see that, but it's true. We'll, we'll see it someday. Even the bad will work for good in our lives, and the good in our lives we cannot lose, and the best in our lives is coming soon. So we can have joy and commitment just in our relationship with God. Well, let's kind of break that down. How do we know we, we can be content and joyful? How do we know? Because that bad things that God will work for good in our life. Well, that's Romans 8, 28, right? Remember that passage? It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God's saying that once we become his child, he loves us like a father. And even though we go through suffering or painful or hurtful things, or sometimes we feel that we're in want, he will 
make that a positive in our lives. And if we don't see it, and a lot of times we see that with a few years perspective, but we will see that someday. Even our bad things, God will work for good in our lives. And then second, our good things can never be lost. Once we receive God's forgiveness through repentance and faith in Christ, then we can never lose that. That's the best thing that we can have, the most valuable possession we can have, and we cannot lose it. Here's the way the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 13.5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. We have contentment knowing that as a child of God, that will never change. He will never leave us. Romans 8.38 continues this way, for I am convinced, this is Paul, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our salvation is eternal. It's eternal life. It lasts forever. Once we truly come to Christ, we can never lose that no matter what happens in our life. The good we can never lose, and the best is coming soon. Paul faced death repeatedly in his ministry, and it didn't bother him. Why? Well, he says it in Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying to live is to serve God. And if I'm killed or I die, well, then it gets even better because I'll be in heaven with him. How could he say that? Because he has contentment. But, but please understand, it's not just contentment. How do we avoid the trap? Contentment. But it's contentment with godliness. Remember, that's what he said, godliness and contentment. What does godliness need? Just following God. If we're truly a believer and we're following God, we can have contentment because we know even the bad things we experience, God will use for good in our life. And the good things that we have, we can never lose. And the best thing that we'll ever have is coming soon. But that's all based on us being a follower of Christ. You see, the scariest thing in the Bible is not what God tells us to do with our money. You want to know the scariest thing in the Bible? Some of you do. Do you want to know the scariest thing in the Bible? Because some of you are going, no, no, I do not want to know that. Please just do not tell me that. Here's the scariest thing in the Bible. 
scariest truth in the Bible. God is good. I know you're thinking, wow, that wasn't so bad. God is, how could that be the scariest? God is good. And we are not. And in God's goodness, wrapped up in that is righteousness and justice. In God's goodness and his righteousness and his justice, God will, by his very character, punish evil. And we are all evil. And as non-good or, or truly evil people, which we all are, as evil people, we stand under the righteous wrath of a holy God. And there is nothing we can do in and of ourselves selves to get us out of that position standing under the righteous correct wrath of God and that's true for me and it's true for everyone but God still loves us and so he sent his son who came and lived a perfect life with no sin and then he voluntarily went to the cross of Calvary where he experienced God's wrath for us meaning if you're a believer all the sins past present and future that you have committed or will ever commit was poured out on Jesus Christ and he suffered the wrath from the Father that we deserve and he didn't. He suffered the wrath of God for us. And the way that is for us is through faith. The way that that it's our wrath he paid for, the wrath that we deserve, the punishment that we deserve that Christ paid for is if we respond through faith. It's repentance and faith. And how do we know we have that? Because faith is more than saying a certain prayer or raising your hand or something like that. I mean, you can do that and that could be an expression of faith. But that's not what faith is. Faith is when we put our trust that Christ's finished work on the cross satisfied all of God's wrath against me. And I am declared righteous even though I don't deserve to be declared, to be declared righteous. And the way that we know we're saved... The way we know that that prayer or that hand or however your experience was, that that was real rather than not real is simply by looking at your life. 
Because that repentance that started, which is a change of your mind again about who Jesus is, but leads to a change of your whole life, a total reorientation of how you're living. Because now you're living for him and no longer for yourself. And God says that he who began a good work will finish it, meaning... Part of that is meaning that, that we are in this process of becoming more and more Christ-like, better and better people, more and more the way God wants us to be. And that that repentance that started on the day that we became believers, that repentance continues through our life. And that when we do things that we know is out of line of God's word and God's truth, that we feel bad for that. We repent anew. And our life changes over time. And we'll talk a little bit more about this next week, but I'm just saying, if we look back over our life, and and maybe you've been saved for a, a month or a year or 10 years or three decades or five decades, when you look back over your life, if you don't see that God is growing your life toward him, then you're missing an evidence of your salvation. Paul writes to the the church in Corinth saying, test yourselves to see whether you're of the faith. And if we find ourselves in habitual lifestyle that's against God or habitual sin, then we as children of God should expect God's discipline because that's what God said he would do for his children. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 12, 6, it says, for those whom the Lord loves... He disciplines, just like we would discipline our child when they were heading the wrong way. And so, if you prayed a prayer, but it didn't really change your life to be more like God, you have no desire to follow God, you've not seen God do anything in your life, you're, repent, you're not continually repenting, maybe, and, and you find yourself in a lifestyle that's contrary to what God would want for your life, and you've not experienced the discipline of God. And maybe that's telling you that you haven't experienced salvation. You haven't experienced the godliness that is integral to you being able to be content. You really, you said some words but you didn't really follow through with your life. And and again, there's no work that we can do that earns or justifies in any way our salvation. It's just when we become a Christian, we become a child of God, and God's Spirit works in us to grow us over time in different areas of our life to be more and more like Him. And if you never have experienced that, then you should question your salvation. Again, talk a little bit more about this next time, but that's the scariest thing in the Bible. God is good. And it's scary because I am not. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your care for us. And God, when we, when we say that you're good, And we realize the righteousness and justice and wrath, righteous wrath that that involves. 
Lord, it should make us to, to stop and take notice and reevaluate our lives to ensure that we've come to faith. And Lord, the way we know that, the way we, that we can have assurance in that, we thank you because it's you care about us and you work to transform us, to change us, to work in us so we can be a little bit more like you over time. And God, we pray that you would continue to do that in our hearts, that you would mold us into your image, that you would help us that we would be broken in the areas where we know we're not fully following you. And Father, if there's any of our friends here who have maybe been to church for years and have considered themselves Christians, but Lord, if they have no evidence of that in their life, we pray that your spirit would, would help them to see, help us all to see, Lord. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for salvation being a free gift that we can't earn. Thank you for that greatest gift, Lord, that you've paid a costly price for so that we can live in joy and contentment as we follow you. Thanks. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.